Welcome everyone to the newest episode of the Jay Davis podcast. We're super excited to have our guest with us today, uh, Carlos Salif, uh, CEO of Leo Flight. Uh, welcome to the show, Carlos. Thank you, Jay. Great to be here. Do you want to just give us kind of like a 10 second, like what's that bullet point thing about Carlos? The list. Sure. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Uh, bullet point thing about Carlos. I've always been fascinated with with vehicles, with speed, with cool airplanes and cars since I was a kid. Uh, my dad's a musician. And as a kid, we did a lot of travel. And I, I got a lot of seat time on airplanes. And back then, it was like the glory days of airplanes when, you know, Braniff and Pan Am and TWA were in full swing. And they had like beautiful interiors with, you know, super colorful interiors and the, you know, the uh, steward and stewardesses are all decked out. And it was a really special time in aviation. And I just kind of fell in love with the whole experience of getting in this sleek thing and, and just the feeling of flight and the feeling of getting into, into this machine and then stepping out of it in another world, another completely other country, a different place. I just fell in love with the whole thing. And then somewhere along the line, I discovered cars as well. I think having already fallen in love with this notion of the, the speed machine, the, the romance of, you know, travel and um, mobility, I guess. Um, I started just tinkering with radio control cars and airplanes and rockets. So, and it was just a part of me. Uh, everything I did had something to do with this notion of speed, um, skateboarding, snowboarding, uh, baseball. I mostly pitched, like just throwing the ball really fast, like was a thing I loved to do. Hearing it, that sizzles, <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, it was always something about, about motion and speed and travel. And, um, I discovered the career of automotive design after high school, because before that I was a very confused child. and. I only knew about engineering and fine art, and neither of those were really exactly me. I'm a blend of the two. And I learned about this automotive design program in Pasadena uh, at the Art Center College of Design that specializes in training automotive designers. And uh, went through that program and ended up joining Mazda uh, in Southern California, their advanced design and production studio. And in there we worked with a small team, I think it was about 15 total fabricators, designers, everything. And we worked on um, all of the the model range, but also a lot of concept vehicles. And it was a lot of time, it was at a time when a lot of talented people were coming through the studio. So I stayed a lot longer than I thought I would. Um, but the head of Tesla Design, Franz von Holthausen, came through that studio and was our boss for a while. Derek Jenkins, uh, who's the head of Lucid Motors, the electric car company, was there. And just super talented people. And I, I just, I was learning from great people and I loved the experience. So I stayed a long time. And after a while though, I kind of got, sorry, this is a lot quicker than like a minute bullet point, but, uh, but I kind of got bogged down in this, the way that designers are siloed, um, away from engineering and R and D. And so the way it usually works in a car design studio is the engineering department, uh, will, will create a, a, an engineering package, it's called, uh, with, you know, people and drivetrain things laid out on a, 
on the side of your drawing and they, and they send it to design and we all engineering and design get a brief from above um, from the marketing department saying, hey, we need an SUV. It needs to be this size. It needs to do this and this. And then we look at it and we're like, all right, so I think we can work with this. Um, but like that's going to make the hood way too high. And that's just going to look like it got hit with an ugly stick. So we're going to need to like lower that. And so we go back and we have this like bargaining process with engineering. Please make the overall tire size bigger and wheel size bigger. Please, you know, all these requests, get the engine down, things like that. Um, but I wanted to get deeper into that process. And the other thing was I saw a lot of waste of talent and a lot of, I felt a lot of time wastage. Like we did so many cool, cool internal projects that could have any of them, you could have had a blindfold on and thrown a dart and been like, that's a great design. Just do that. Like, cause every single thing was so cool. And, uh, any of them would have been a bestseller, but the, there's this like overthinking things, you know, and that's part of the reason why I admire the way Steve Jobs created and deployed products because it was more from the gut. Like everyone thinks that's cool. We should probably make it or that's not only environmentally uh, conscious, but it's also cool. So that's a no brainer. And it, the decisions surprisingly weren't really like that. And I think that's a general thing with all car companies. It wasn't just a Monza thing. So um, so I went on to do my own, I started my own car design coach building company, design consulting and coach building uh, called Salif Automotive. And that gave me the opportunity to really work directly with engineers on building chassis from the ground up, on designing components. Um, even now I'm working on a car with a new company out of North Carolina and we're designing everything, the oil coolers, the exhaust header system, um, everything is the skin and the guts and the bones are all considered. Uh, and I, and I love that from then I'm going to try to abbreviate the, the next two parts for a little bit. So from there, I went on to design, um, mobile office interiors. So imagine a scene out of 2001, a space odyssey, like maybe the Hilton hotel scene in, in space, that aesthetic, but inside of a sprinter van. Um, and you have all of the office suite that you need, like you have your teleconferencing and you have internet access and you have all of the things you need as, as a business exec to get work done from the airport to the hotel or from office to somewhere else. And, uh, that was a really fun project. That was a company called Vibe Vance. And, um, we had this awesome, I kind of oversaw everything, the branding, the graphics, the interior design. And we just had this awesome space age theme to it. And it was kind of harkening back to the, the aircraft you know, I grew up with as a kid. But sadly, uh, we had a lot of interest from hotels and hospitality chains. And that was right before the pandemic hit. And then once the pandemic hit, it just kind of, it, it really threw a wrench in our spokes. Um, but I think it still has a ton of potential if anyone's you know thinking about that sort of thing. Um, and around that time, I was also very interested by what I saw happening in the aerial mobility space. And I've always, as I said, I've been fascinated with, with aircraft and, and aviation. And I saw this confluence of communications technology and energy density and batteries going up and sort of the microization of propulsion systems 
And um, I was very intrigued by what that means for the future. And like any other kid, I, I want to see flying cars. I want to live out the Jetsons, you know, and uh, I saw what was going on. But most the most of the concepts I saw were like large drones with big propellers or multiple big propellers. And I thought there's got to be something better than this uh, for a propulsion system, something that will allow, allow a more automotive kind of way of thinking, like more of this notion of an automotive form factor, automotive size and accessibility. And um, so I started kind of researching propulsion systems, who was doing what. And I found my co-founder, Pete Batar, through that, that research process. Um, he, he's been designing um, clustered electric jet propulsion systems, which are, are small clusters of small electric jets that work together um, to produce electric vertical takeoff and landing systems. And I thought, man, that's the ticket. That's the ticket because with that, you have a lot of design flexibility to create a more compact form to flexibility with aerodynamics. You have no exposed big propeller blades out in harm's way. And that just has like cascading effects for infrastructure, where that can go. Cars and airplane and helicopters are just always going to be hamstrung by certain properties and things they can't do. And this is like the thing that can go where they can't. So that's that's my focus now. And that's we started Leo Flight Corporation on uh, 2020 together. He he completely had the same same line of thinking I did. It was like a perfect perfect alignment there. And um, we've been working since then and a lot, a lot happening since then working together, but he's the best though. Like he's, he's an awesome partner to be working with because we have very much the same kind of mindset about the future. Um, but we have very kind of complementary skill sets. Essentially you've invented the flying car and that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing I was going to ask, so with the jet, I mean, it's, it's electric jet engines. How many are on a car? Like what, what kind of number? So the Leo coupe will have 200 vertical jets. And the way to think about it is one cluster of jets comprises one corner of the system. So usually when you think about a drone, like a quadcopter, you have four corners and you have one thruster per corner and so one cluster kind of creates one one corner of, of thrust in the Leo Coupe. So the Leo Coupe has four wings that really look like car thunders and the jets are within, there's four clusters of jets within those, uh, four clusters of 50 within, actually it's not 50, it's a little more distributed than that, but to generalize. Um, and then we have another set of, of jets in the back for forward thrust. So the way that our system works it's not like a quadcopter where um it takes off and then has to tilt to 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 move you forward so our system has a dedicated set of jets at the back so it it lifts very flat and then the the rear jets come on and start pushing it forward and then it gets onto the wings we do have aerodynamic lift through the with the wings that we have and then those, all the vertical thrusters shut off and they louver over for more uh, aerodynamic efficiency. So it's electric vertical takeoff and landing, but a much more kind of gentle sort of flight characteristic as it 
gets up to speed than, than you would have with a quadcopter where it's tilting around. One of the questions I've thought about since we first talked and met, <laughs> and I've been like, I got to ask Carlos how that works. So how do you then, like, so you guys invent the flying car, you're working on it. I mean, you guys have done test flights. You, you're pretty far down this path. Like, at what point do you feel like... No, turn it back probably, now, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not turning back. One of my questions is, like, how do you... Like, I think as we talked, it like opened my mind, like, man, I think you even said this, like, it's one of those things that people always think is super, super, super far away, but for sure will happen. And you're like, no, we're actually probably closer than people think. And, um, and it, ever since we talked, I was like, man, I just think about all the implications. And so what's that process like? Like, how do you determine where roads are? Where can people fly? How do you not run into planes? Like. There's probably so many questions that like, like you said, inventing that flying car was a monumental feat, but now it's like, what about all the other stuff? What's that been like? And what's that process like? That's a great question. And probably one of the things I like the most about what we're doing, because with rotor craft, with something with big helicopter blades on it or propeller blades, you have to have a margin of safety around that. So that's why. I don't know if you've heard of vertiports, but it's kind of a new word for heliports, but for electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And there are a lot of them planned to be built in major cities. And the reason is they're big, dangerous machines. And so you need a lot of margin of, of, of safety around those. And what's so beautiful about our system is we don't have any external spinning, rotating blades and or nor do we have any large ducted propellers which are also there even though the edges are protected they're still big you know blades moving around our jets are small they're you know like that so so no getting into the turbine like in movies so like you can't really throw a frozen chicken in one of those um (laughs) yeah like the amount of things you like maybe a like um one of those frogs from the Amazon, I hate saying because they're so beautiful, but it'd have to be a very tiny, like a lizard from Geico. I hate saying that too. That's so mean. The Geico frog's so cute. But like, it'd have to be a pretty small thing to go in there to, because of the, the inlets are so small. So it's a very safe vehicle. Um, it has, we have multiple lem- levels of safety in our vehicle. We have a ballistic chute um, and we don't have to worry about it getting tangled in any propeller blades. Um, we have emergency glide because we do have lift and a lot of drones don't actually have any kind of aerodynamic lift. So if your propeller system fails, you're just going down. So um, the the use cases are really exciting for this. Um, our vision is really door to door, the Jetsons. You know, you step out of your house, this thing fits into an automotive footprint. So it can fit into a conventional two-car garage or in a driveway. Um, so the vision really is go out your front door, hop in a Leo coupe, fly to work in minutes instead of, you know, hours for some people who commute. Um, and you land directly where you're going, you know, right at your office, right at the mall, the bank, wherever the airport, wherever you're going. And, um, that that's probably the biggest differentiator. And 
really we're creating a vehicle for, for personal use, like an automotive personal ownership model, um, where most, most other companies are creating air taxi services. Um, I will say though, that we have, like, if you go on our website, there's a tab that says fleet and we have a, a list of use cases there, just like today's car, where you could use them as taxis or whatever, you know, you can use our vehicle for, for ta air taxi, tourism, um, medevac, anything where time is of the essence. Because as I was saying earlier, this, you know, idea of anything that you can't reach with a car or a helicopter, that's, we can reach, you know, and so the landing spots, accessibility, um, fire rescue, um, there, there's just so many, um, Coast Guard, so many areas where you can imagine a vehicle like this having utility. Um, but you were asking like, also, like, how realistic is it to integrate this into today's, you know, airspace and everything? And it's going to be easier than uh, today's today's vehicles. It's a much simpler to fly vehicle. Like we we're semi autonomous. That the wheel coupe will be have a level of autonomous control to it. So automated takeoffs and landings, um, auto auto stability controls. So you don't have to be constantly like on a yoke and, you know, if you go, whoa, the plane's going to, like, if you, if you were to like let go of the sticks, it's just going to hover there or maintain your speed because we have so many more autonomous controls now that we can integrate. And so for the Federal Aviation Administration, um, more, you know, increased safety for people and person and property, you know, that's really the name of the game. Um, so certification will be under the expansion of, of sport pilot rules. Um, and we anticipate that it'll take three hours of, of flight training and 20 hours of total flight time to, to get a license, which is like less than half of like a driver's license. So, um, we're just making it as simple as we can, as simple as we possibly can, as safe as we possibly can, as practical as we can. Uh, to truly make it uh, a scalable, a scalable solution. And the other aspect is we're not just thinking about the car itself. Back to your original question, we're also thinking about recharging infrastructure um, to uh, be able to do longer travel or to be able to recharge when you're on the go. We're creating something called a VertiStop, which is a small charging pad. It's sort of like form factor of a big phone. And if you can imagine like you're the vehicle landing on the phone and then doing a fast charge and then going to the next place, that's that the idea. And what's so cool is unlike a big expensive heli, heliport or verse or what are they called? Um, vertiport with this, you can just drop it like on a parking garage or, um, you know, any rooftop or parking structure super easy to install this there and, and create an instant place where the wheel coop can land and take off and recharge from safely. So uh, the infrastructure build out will be much, much easier to do, you know, than having to build a large structure in an urban environment. You know, it's a lot, a lot bigger of a hurdle to cross, a lot more expensive and not that green either, you know? Yeah. So, what would be the, like, what, what's kind of flight time? So like on a full charge, is it, and, and what's kind of top yeah. speed? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so our projections right now are up with current lithium batteries, current lithium ion tech. Um, and we've had so many battery companies reaching out saying we have the next big thing and we've got a lot of batteries to test. But with current lithium ion batteries, we're projecting an hour and 15 minutes of flight time with reserves. Uh, so that includes reserve time and then a, a 200 mile an hour cruise speed. So about a 250 mile total range. Uh, so like leaps ahead, it's leaps ahead of most propeller drone based technology, which is like a third of that, you know, uh, capability for its cargo's, you know, capacity. So it's, it's a huge step. So if someone's like taking off out of their driveway, does it kind of say, Hey, keep on this path so that you don't run into another person. I mean, as after we talked, I started to daydream of, you know, are we going to have virtual roads that the windshield kind of shows us like, Hey, this is the road you're allowed to stay in and don't leave it. And, uh, <laughs> well, what's the, I think like Star Fox when you played that game and you had to go through all like the, the rings. I think it's going to go that way. Um, initially you'll communicate with the control tower with, um, yeah, you'll communicate with the control tower the same way you would with a conventional plane or helicopter. Um, but we, so we, you know, all that, you know, a, you know, AI technology to manage airspace, we'll be able to integrate all that stuff into our, into our vehicle as it comes. Um, and it's, it's all going in that direction where you'll be able to chart a course, say, I want to go there, the aircraft charts the course. And what we envision is probably for a while, you'll still have some degree of, of, um, you'll have to have a pilot pointing it, you know, through that, through those, you know, gates, if you will. Uh, yeah. But eventually full, it's full autonomous is definitely on its way where you yeah. won't even need to touch the controls at all. Um, it'll just take you so there. It'll take you there. And, you know, our sort of philosophy is in the early days, we should probably have a human pilot on board. And so that's why we're going human pilot semi-autonomous. And also the regulatory hurdles for a fully autom autonomous vehicle are higher, um, as you would expect. Because <laughs> when you don't have a pilot on board, it's like, uh, okay, I hope this thing, it's a lot of trust. So we're planning on sort of evolving and integrating fully autonomous as the technology matures and as people become more comfortable with more autonomous functions uh, for flight. Yeah, I love it. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask, I, as an entrepreneur, I always get asked, like, I have friends who want to start something, they want to do something. And uh, there was like, how do I get started? You know, I'm, I'm afraid of the unknown. I'm, I don't know where to start. Uh, you more than probably anyone I've ever talked to had this hurdle of like, I mean, this is not like making a pillow. I mean, you're, you're like this very, very bold idea of, I want to make the car that the Jetsons flow in. Like, how did you, was there that a process? How did you get to the point where you're like, I'm doing this. Like I, I can make this happen. This is within grasp. I mean, to me, that seemed like so many things have to having to hit right and converging. And I'm sure there were some of that too, but like, how did you get to that point? You're like, I'm doing it. I'm in. Yeah, it's a great question. Surely I'm born at a time and no one can choose like when they're born, but I'm born at a time when these technologies are emerging. So I'm really grateful to be here and not, you know, 1800s. 
the way I think is sort of like I see these various components of things and I go, oh, I can I can put that together like uh, like a chef who sees ingredients and they're like, oh, there's this new ingredient. Like I've never heard of this type of carrot before or this. Oh, look at that process with that sugar. And they're like, ooh, and like they think of a dish they can make with it that's just going to be revolutionary. It's kind of similar. That's kind of similar to the way my brain works. Um, I and, and, you know, I tinkered a lot with electric radio control cars when I was a kid. And I, I remember how much simpler those systems were than internal combustion systems. And so I kind of have a systems mind where I can see the components coming together to create something. And I was like, I think we have, I think we can make this stew. Like, I think, I think it's possible, you know? And, and that was part of the process of reaching out to, to my co-founder Pete and being like, Hey, do you think this is possible? Like, here's where I'm coming from. And he's like, I think it's absolutely possible. Like, he, he's the same way where it's like, and it, as far as taking a risk, I mean, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, you know, when, when our days end and, you know, we, we pass on. So I feel like I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to use my time going for it. I'm going to think of the biggest dream that I have and go for that. And, uh, I don't want to waste any of my time here, you know? Um, it's inspiring. It's freaking amazing. Love it. Um, yeah, what what do you think has been one of the more surprising lessons in this process? I mean, you guys have done, uh, there's a lot of, I think you, uh, like, it's, I'm sure more complex than maybe you've made it sound of like, oh, I saw these things that work and I did it. I mean, you guys have invented a lot of new things, uh, new processes, like what's been the most surprising lesson going through that multi-year process of innovation, new ideas, taking things and combining them that have never been combined. What have you learned that you'd want to share with people? As far as the most surprising lesson, you know, Jay, I find that the most important thing for me has been the people that I work with, uh, whether it be the people that build this with me or the investors we have or um, any aspect along that chain, everyone's essential and we all trust each other. And I think some of my most painful experiences have been trusting someone that maybe I shouldn't have and they fell through. And those have been the biggest setbacks. And then, you know, obviously there's some circumstances that we can't control. Like just this last year, um, what was happening with the war in Ukraine and with economic fears about a recession and about inflation uh, that really made things difficult on the investment side because you had a lot of investors sitting on the sidelines, you know, waiting to see how, how the market goes totally out of our hands. So I think maybe one of the biggest surprising lessons is just like, be, re be ready for the unknown. And Really, really, um, again, really think about who you who you choose to work with. Really try to know them as well as you can, and um, and that's been the greatest success we've had too. I think finding Pete and working with Pete has been my greatest success. Like he's been the greatest partner I've ever had, and um, Pete impresses me all the time with the technology the propulsion technology that he's built is really the the core 
you know, um, to the vehicle, to making it work. And uh, it enables so much aerodynamics, design. Um, so I think choosing, you know, choosing the right people to work with and uh, just being prepared for the unknown always good and bad because I've had stuff happen in the day where I'm like, I don't have much going on today. And then poof, I get a phone call at 10 in the morning. Hey, can you be at here? Meet me at so-and-so. I'm meeting so-and-so. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'll be there in like 10 minutes. And it's like crazy day. It's exciting day. So, you know, it's just different all the time. Yeah. So, but the, the actual building of the thing isn't, to me, that's not, the hard part and there have been like ghosts in the system that we've had to figure out like why is that happening like that that doesn't make any sense and we figure it out eventually and go oh yeah but um but that's been more straightforward actually than some of the other stuff i mentioned i couldn't agree more what you said about people uh, i think from the outside companies seem like a faceless just corporation and then you get inside and you're like it's just people and it's all about people and it's finding those geniuses like Pete, uh, like yourself and getting them together. And I mean, you meet Pete and I could tell within a couple of minutes of talking to him that he's not only super intelligent, he's also just like a wonderful person. That you're like, man, you're just a he's good He's one of the person. kindest people that I know. He, he's so kind, patient. And there's this myth, I think, in our culture that to be a leader, you have to kind of be an asshole. Like yeah. part of the legend of Steve Jobs is his notorious assholery. Like I admire all of the things he brought to the world. And, but I, you know, I think, and I could name, you know, obviously more examples of that, but I think that's not what made him successful. Like, I think that just creates a culture of fear and people are afraid to share ideas because they're afraid to get yelled at. And, you know, I, I think, at the end of the day, kindness and love and collaboration is, it's key. And why are we doing anything if we're not going to be kind to each other? So when we meet someone, we're on a call with a potential person and they're full themselves and a jerk, doesn't really matter what they're doing. Cause we'll be like, why would we want to spend any time around this person? You know? So on the other hand, if they're like a wonderful person and like and, and that just like completely opens the door immediately. Like if they're just cool from the start and uh, like, oh, we'd love to work with this person. Let's find out more about them and let's, you know, explore. So that's big for us. Kindness, hard work, like those, like loyalty, like just being there for each other, like being available. Um, those things are so important to us, you know, like, because there's a lot of unreliable people that, fall off like you, you know you have something going and then they just like fall off they ghost you or it's like what is up with this person so those all those things matter so much in a relationship and in a working environment the, the jerks aren't worth it that's that's definitely my just not worth it um i was looking it up on my phone because i i got this book my dad's like maybe the biggest steve jobs fan on the planet he loves steve jobs i'm a, i am too by the way yeah well <laughs> This is the book I was going to share. So he's recommended this book called Becoming Steve Jobs. And it's written by the, I think it's the Forbes Business Week journalist who like interviewed more, Steve more than anyone else. And he kind of pushes back on the, like, he's like, he definitely could be a jerk. But it was something he saw as a flaw, not as a strength. And he worked to overcome that and 
and work against that. And he's like, also over the course of the 30 years I knew Steve, he got better. He like, he, he became more caring. He became more kind. And his closest people he worked with in the last 10 years of his life really don't talk about him that way. But he's like, but it became such a caricature of him in the media that everyone just kind of latched onto it. But he would be, he tells this story. It's one of my favorite stories about Steve Jobs, but the guy who invented the dock, have you ever heard this? The guy who invented the dock at the bottom of the Mac where that pops up. So he came in for an interview and he didn't do well. And, and, and just like, they were like, no, no, thanks. And Steve saw him really like emotional in the hallway afterwards. And when I was like, hey, like, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Like, you know, just put it behind you. Uh, it wasn't, don't like judge yourself based on this whole thing. And he's like, well, I just feel like I didn't explain what I can do. And I've, I've developed really cool stuff that I didn't even get to show you. And Steve was like, oh, tell me about it. And he showed him the dock that pops up from the bottom. And Steve was like, you're hired. Uh, like that's genius. And just that, like willingness to see someone like we don't imagine him being an empathetic, like, oh, this guy's sad and probably, uh, you know, really wanted this job. And so anyways, I, I think it's, but it's so true. Like, I think we have in our culture, this idea that as an entrepreneur, you just have to be this massive jerk who's always firing and yelling and screaming. And I find that to be rarely the case, the successful entrepreneurs are that way. It's more like a cult of, yeah, it's our culture's cult of, uh, like this entrepreneur cult that's like, this is how you have to be to be a real leader, a real man, you know, a real macho man, you know, like you got to be a jerk and you're all, oh, you'll like get nothing done in life. You know, I'm not here to make friends like that kind of like, um, I think a lot of that came out of like stories we heard about, you know, legend from Steve Jobs and stuff, but, uh, Steve Jobs, but yeah, that was more my point than, than jumping on, you know, Steve Jobs's moments. But yeah, I think he, he evolved a lot in his life, was evolved a lot throughout his life. All of us do. I've been a jerk too. Look, I've been an asshole too. So, but I've discovered kindness is just better. I totally agree that I think that that's our culture. You know, you see the Gordon Ramsays who just. Yeah, it's like glorified, right? Or like the caricature of Trump. You're fired, you know, like a tough guy, you know, so. And in reality, that's not. I find that to be rarely the case where I meet successful entrepreneurs and everyone around them's like, yeah, they're horrible people. <laughs> like in, in most cases, it's like, no, they're really nice. They want, they're usually like overly generous. So anyways, I, I think it's such a great point. And it creates a different environment and culture inside your company. It's just a different vibe. Yeah, I think it's sort of like, People know that there's a place for their ideas and there's a place for ideas to grow. It's like if people feel unsafe about sharing something, then you may not ever hear the idea and it may fall on, it may, it may die like on content, you know? Uh, so I think for those ideas to grow and become something, there has to be an openness and a degree of, of good listening as well, like a receptivity and sensitivity to people's way of working and their ideas. And that's important. Here at our agency, we have, we call it what ifing and yeah, budding. And so we talk about like, you know, if there's a brainstorm session, we just what if, 
for like the first 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And then once we've allowed ourselves to like love the idea and what if it and build on it, then we can kind of like, okay, is this like possible? Is it economically viable? But if not, but maybe if it's not, is there a way to make it viable? And I think that's exactly it is you, if you do, if you try and do those two things at the same time, someone can throw out a brilliant idea, but someone's like, no, that doesn't work. And that idea immediately dies when in reality it could, it often is just like, well, you just got to tweak this thing and change. I think that's why I love what you guys have done. You're like, well, yeah, there's that problem, but you can solve it by doing this. And then if you combine it with this, that gets around those limitations. And it totally, this idea that so many people shot down becomes something amazing. Totally. That's a great point. And all of us communicate differently and we all use words, which are just sounds. So you may be saying something and I may be hearing you and thinking some, imagining something from what you said, and it, it may not be exactly what you're thinking. So I think just letting, like getting it out and really thinking it through is important just to make sure because we, we all see things from diff different angles. So, well, uh, we went way over our time because it's too fun to chat. Uh, anything you'd like people to do, what would you like the viewers to? <laughs> I want people to go and have fun. I want people to think what's the most fun thing and then go do that. And I know, you know, we all have to think about our finances and sometimes hold John jobs. We don't want, but, I'm talking about like what you really want to do, work toward, go do what's really fun. And I think yeah. that's, that's the key. Well, thank you again for coming. Uh, it's always, every time we talk, I'm like, yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go do something cool. It's always inspiring. So thank you again. Thanks for having me, Jay. Hey, thanks. Appreciate you uh, having me on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Carlos.